Welcome to a special episode of the Life of a Nephrologist podcast. I'm Sam Kent. I'm a Transplant Nephrology Fellow at Johns Hopkins. This episode is the third within a series celebrating the 40th anniversary of the American Journal of Kidney Disease, which is the official journal of the National Kidney Foundation. Today, we focus on ways in which the AJKD has communicated health policy updates in the last four decades and discuss key developments in kidney disease and health policy. Our guests, Miriam Godwin, the NKF Health Policy Director, Sharon Moe, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension at Indiana University, and a past president of ASN. Bruce Robinson, Professor of Medicine at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, also working in the Ann Arbor Research Collaborative for Health. And Dan Wiener, Associate Professor of Medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine and Editor-in-Chief of Kidney Medicine. Dan is actually a familiar friend of the AJKD, having also served as a deputy editor for 10 years and then as a policy forum editor for another five years. So without any further delay, I'd love to ask Dan about the historical context of the Medicare uh, ESRD program. Please tell us more about it. Thanks so much, Sam. Thanks for the, the kind introductions. Um, and it's really exciting to be here talking about policy. I think something that's near and dear um, to all of us and something that we've really worked hard on to try to help the lives of people with or at risk for kidney diseases. Um, so this is the 40th anniversary of AJKD, which is a pretty momentous occasion. But I also want to highlight that um, 2022 is the 50th anniversary of the ESRD program in the United States. That was um, passed in late October of 1972, um, slightly before I was born, um, so a long time ago. Um, and it was really one of the most transformative events in healthcare um, in the United States and worldwide because it allowed people access to a therapy that was otherwise um, unaffordable and unaccessible to the people who were suffering from kidney disease and who otherwise would die without this unless they had access to a, a perfect transplant. Um, I think this really highlights things. In 1972 and 1973, when the ESRD program really began, nephrology was the leader. Um, we were at the forefront of innovation. We had an organ replacement therapy. We had advocated to get Congress to pay for it. Um, and I mean, we hit a moonshot three years after the real moonshot. Um, unfortunately, since then, um, and 50 years since then, I think it would be hard to say that nephrology is an innovation leader. We've tried and we've had some real advances in the past few years, but I think that we've been innovation laggards as compares to everybody else. And, and reversing this trend is absolutely critical for people with kidney diseases. And I think that's sort of something for this podcast that we should keep in the background is where do we go from here? How do we reassume our lead as innovators and as explorers and discoverers in terms of really benefiting people? Um, I think dialysis, again, was our best innovation 50 years ago. Um, but right now, it's probably not the best way to treat the vast majority of people with kidney failure and figuring out how to move people on to better therapies um, than hemodialysis in center. And most importantly, how to make sure that people don't reach um, the need for hemodialysis and center is where we need to be in the future. Um, so even though the dialysis has been at the forefront of policy for so long, there really is a broader push right now to addressing kidney disease before kidney failure, as well as for making sure that people have choices when and if they develop kidney failure, including transplant, home dialysis, conservative care, um, and making sure that this is available to as many people as possible. 
Thank you, Dan. Um, you know, I think CKD has returned to a massive focus now. Um, I think we're starting to see a lot of uh, epidemiologic studies coming out about that to kind of understand that further, but there have been change in population patterns um, that we've noted. Um, maybe Bruce, you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, happy to do so, Sam. Uh, and, th and thanks uh, to you and thanks so much to the AJKD uh, for 40 years of just excellence and so it's playing such an important role in, in, in the U.S. kidney community uh, and worldwide, in fact. Yeah, I wanted to highlight a couple trends um, with a focus really on end-stage kidney disease. But actually, as, as I do that, that, I think that tells us quite a bit about non-dialysis CKD as well. Um, and I, from my point of view, these are you know, quite sobering um, and uh, really a sort of barometer of where we stand and, and where we need to go. If you look, first of all, at prevalence of end-stage kidney disease, that is uh, dialysis uh, or transplantation, it is increasing linearly and it has done so for, for decades. And um, you're literally on the USRDS, you'll see it's going up about 20,000 patients a year, year after year. Um, our group had, had uh, done some modeling several years ago suggesting we'll get to a million patients by 2030. And it looks like we're gonna be there. Actually, we're just over 800,000 uh, prevalent end-stage kidney disease patients right now. Um, and the reasons for, th for this are, first of all, there is actually an improvement in survival on dialysis, which I'll get back to in a moment. Uh, but before getting there, we continue to have rise in incidence of kidney failure um, year after year after year. And it, it, interestingly, if you look within stratums, for example, by age, diabetic status, et cetera, we actually have seen some flattening, up, flattening off. That is, we may actually be doing better for, for patients and, and treatment, uh, making some progress in that regard. The problem that we're facing is really the, just that over, overwhelming demographic shifts. Um, and, uh, you know, I, actually, from our point of view, when looking at this, it seems to be driven in large part by, um, by lifestyle trends and obesity, for example, as a driver of um, diabetes, hypertension, et cetera. Um, and so really, even though we may be making some, some progress at this at a micro level, it's the demographic trends that are really sort of uh, what, we're, what we're facing with. And the challenges, uh, as, you know, as Dan notes, that we're faced with respect to trying to, to actually delay regression to ultimately the kidney failure. The combination of obesity and the baby boomers is just... It's just really hard. I mean, there's so many yeah. for CKD. But in addition to more CKD, I think there's a misconception that it's an isolated disease. CKD itself increases the risk of cardiovascular disease and all these other chronic diseases. So there's a tension on population health on cardiovascular disease, but they ignore the kidney component. Um, obesity, but they don't think about the kidney component. Um, and so I think we need to actually take some of our population data like you're describing and actually demonstrate from a policy point of view that we're not just talking about kidneys, we're talking about a systemic illness that affects every organ. Um, and that's where we're going to get more, more um, interest in our policy initiatives. Yeah, yeah, indeed, Sharon. Yeah, and that's really where we need to go, right? Uh, with some of the newer therapies like the SGLT2 inhibitors, which obviously impact cardiovascular health as well as kidneys, that's sort of one way we sort of back into that. Um, but you're exactly right, we need to do that. Even if you take the payer perspective, I mean, you look at what's going on, every of the most expensive triads for Medicare, for public payers, have kidney disease in them. Um, these are the highest utilization, most complicated, 
most expensive patients on a grand scheme. And, and those costs are not being driven so much by dialysis. They're being driven by hospitalizations and other comorbid conditions um, and other factors that get these kidney patients, people with advanced chronic kidney disease into trouble. Um, and figuring out how to address this cohesively is hopefully where we're gonna be going. And we have now some agents that allow us to slow, but getting payers to, to help us prescribe them has been an uphill battle for most of us, depending on where we live. But um, that should be impactful. And so I think our next phase of policy, not as per what you said, Bruce, with all this growing, is to really try to liquid this combination of hospitalizations and making CKD not to be a disease, but a costly disease and understanding and how much we can save. I mean, I'd love to see studies on how much we're saving payers by implementing SGLT2. Um, some people get it, some of the payers get it, some don't. Well, and utilization of those therapies is, is still so low. It's incredibly low, actually, if you look, uh, you know, there's so much work to do. Uh, and hopefully it'll, it'll occur, the ramp up will be somewhat, much more, much quicker than it has been for other treatments. And it really needs to be. Miriam, yeah. Well, I was just going to say that I think it's really important to define the, it's really important to define population health, because when I think about population health, I immediately think about healthcare value and right. And so we're thinking about, you know, accountable care organizations and about value-based care. And when we're able to define these trends and characterize these trends, those become targets for accountable care and value-based care. And so that's a really tangible way that population, an understanding of population health impacts policy because it's, right, like you, you we have to create the infrastructure for value-based care and we have to understand what value is. And so I think that's, it's really, really, really important to, um, you know, be able to articulate that, you know, this is a cardiovascular disease problem. This is an obesity problem. You know, there's major value in prescribing these SGLT2 inhibitors there's all kinds of low-hanging fruit in, in kidney disease that we can implement through a value-based care model and we can achieve value. I think even more importantly, I think we need to look at this within our nephrology community and see where, take ownership of the need to have value. I think when you look at SGLT2 inhibitors, you look at some of the new mineralocorticoid receptor blockers, um, everything else, we, we can't defer these treat, pres prescription of these medications or use of these medications to the endocrinologist or the cardiologist, or we're not going to get the outcomes that we want. Um, we need to own this. We need to get comfortable with this. We need to figure out how to learn which insurance company is going to pay for which of these different agents and then make it happen for our patients in order to make a dent in some of these numbers. Yeah, as a colleague of mine said, it's, it's actually informing the, the, the endocrinologist and cardiologist that we're going to, and primary care that we're going to be prescribing the SDLT2 inhibitor, not asking permission to do so. Yeah, no, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's where innovation comes in, though. So I think understanding who will benefit from these new agents and whether, and that kidney disease is not one disease, it's multiple diseases. And there are some patients who really would benefit and some that maybe you don't want to go through all the prior authorization and all that, because it's probably not going to be the, the, the same kind of benefit. Um, and that's where we need to get our workforce going up too. We need to improve our residents' exposure to the fact that we do have therapies now. 
um, that we are innovative. We do have the ability to slow progression of kidney disease, and they shouldn't just look at a GFR and assume one, you know, one GFR of 40 is one GFR of 40. Um, we need to look at each individual patient and get more personalized. We're behind the game compared to like cancer and that, but we've also been behind the game in investment and research. So, I mean, the irony is you've actually had good guidelines for a while that talk not just about finding a GFR number, but also with determining what the risk is associated with kidney disease. And, and to do this, it requires actually measuring markers of damage, specifically the amount of albumin in the urine. And the thing that struck me as remarkable um, recently is how little assessment of albuminuria there is, which means we don't even know who should be getting specific therapies. We're not able to identify kidney disease before it gets to a point that you have really life-changing sequelae from it, which is, which is what we want to prevent. Yeah, that's even among nephrologists, right? And, and time after time, yeah, we, we lag behind other countries in this regard in application of ACE inhibitors, ARBs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's really a question of implementation, right? Uh, yeah, I, I think people who know me will, will tell you that my, one of my many hills that I will die on is being able to articulate to policymakers the ability and the value of being able to risk stratify chronic kidney disease. And I think that part of the challenge that we've had in kind of making the chronic kidney disease case to policymakers is that there has been this sense of, well, they're not gonna progress. Well, we're dealing with cardiovascular disease, so we've got it covered. Or we're dealing with diabetes, so we've got it covered. Or there's nothing we can do. And so I actually think that being able to say, if we do really simple things, like guideline concordant detection of chronic kidney disease, we can identify people who are at really, really high risk of cardiovascular events or kidney failure or death. And we can direct the appropriate resources to people who can really benefit from them. And I think that is, that's a paradigm shift in how we talk about kidney disease and policymakers. But I think we're in a really, really good position to make a much more nuanced case to people like Medicare about why they should care about this. I, I agree. I also think, I mean, the great work done by the NKF and the ASN on the task force on removing race from the EGFR formula, it's absolutely essential that that was done. But at least in our institution, we're using it as an education tool time to bring up EGFR and don't just look at this number. So now you're going to just change a little variable in a very big equation. And does that really change their kidney function? So this is the flaw in EGFR is just that it is a, it should be looked at as a trend over time. So we're taking the advantage to send out the great handouts from the NKF and we did a FAQ and that to um, all of our primary care. So we're trying to use that as not only an important move because it's the right thing to do because race is clearly not a biological factor, it's a sociologic factor. It's a time for us to really raise up on, uh, on this whole GFR concept at the same time. Well, I think like you're saying, I mean, the irony here is despite the importance, five points of GFR is not really anywhere near as meaningful as being able to identify somebody who has a lot of albumin in their urine. I mean, that's so much more prognostically important and so much more meaningful in it trying to figure out what treatments are and, and what next steps are and what the time frame of progression is and cardiovascular risk and everything else. Yeah, we've really tried to take the, um, 
you know, the removal of the race variable to initiate a conversation with CMS and with other payers about the need to not just have the race variable be removed, but to actually make people make sure people get screened, right? And to say like it's not just about EGFR, it's about you know annual EGFR and urine albumin creatinine for your patients with risk factors. And so I think we're we are trying to kind of articulate that there is a bigger context in which this removal of the race variable is happening. Yeah, you know what one thing I found interesting. Um thinking about it again, a lot of my research has been in the dialysis space, but, but people are well aware of the longer survival among black patients on dialysis than others. And I think at the end of the day, um, this reflects um, the fact that, that, that uh, patients of minority race, uh, racial ethnic groups are reaching dialysis generally younger and otherwise healthier. And that really, I think, is reflective of insufficient care um, for such folks, uh, you know, long before they reach dialysis. And gets back again, Miriam, the, the appropriate screening and, and, and on-time implementation of, of the best therapies. And so, and actually to some extent, a, a barometer of success might be over time that we actually start to see that, that racial disparity go away, whereby black patients aren't surviving longer on dialysis because indeed they're, they're not ending up there before they should. Yeah, and also addressing um, transplant. Oh, no question. Is, is no a question. Huge factor in that as well. No and question. Priorities and access to transplant. And I think getting patients who might be progressing faster earlier allows them. I mean, the wait list is just so long. Um, and there are still a lot of misperceptions of, um, you know, I have a patient with a GFR of eight who insists she's going to get a transplant. She just got listed. Um, you know, that denial factor that, that this is such a long wait. And the new allocation system. I don't know, Sam, how is it doing? Um, you know, I'm yet to see the fruits of that, I guess. Um, I think we, we, it'll probably, uh, we probably see the effects in the, over the next two to three years. I think it will be definitely something that we have to look at. Um, but I can tell from the discussion that, you know, in the end, it, there are problems and opportunities, of course, when it comes to implementation, um, awareness, and education. But um, something that's really come into focus recently, um, you know, and is pretty much in vogue is workforce issues. Um, I'd like to begin with Dan to see what you think is going on and how we can solve it. I mean, the world changed in 2020. And before 2020, I mean, we're really focusing in on the nephrologist workforce, um, where people just weren't getting as excited, um, specifically physicians about going into nephrology. Um, that's still a problem, although that seems to have stabilized. Our, our real crisis right now is um, I think particularly in the dialysis units where dialysis nurses, technicians, um, and just people aren't going into this. And, and it reflects the broader um, shortages nationwide, which are, are a huge challenge. There was a recent policy forum editorial actually in HAKD, one of our, our last ones in 2021, that just talked about how the pandemic really highlighted this impending nursing shortage. A lot of our most experienced, most talented, best dialysis nurses um, came into the field in the 70s and the 80s. And you come up with something like a COVID pandemic and accelerates a lot of retirements. And we don't have any sort of bench or interest here to replace this. And this is really going to threaten the well-being of our patients moving forward. Do you think there's something beyond this that's led to all of this trouble that we've had with workforce? I think a lot of this is that they're not teaching nephrology in nursing school. 
so we have, as our division, we've actually taken up a call to start teaching at least the PA program. But there's no, there's virtually no exposure in nursing school to dialysis. There's some to CKD care, but all in the view of being on the wards, which is not the same population as you see that are actually stable outpatient. And this is part of a success in the efficiency of being able to provide dialysis is that it's been taken out of the limelight and people can go to dialysis centers and, and, and get quality dialysis. I think that's also the really important when it comes to home dialysis. You need nurses and others who are experienced with peritoneal dialysis and other home dialysis modalities, and they just don't, they just don't exist. So where we're trying to get people to have more care in the home rather than coming to facilities or coming to institutions, we lack the workforce to actually get to that goal right now. Yeah, I've come to think that we need some really radical policy solutions when it comes to uh, growing the nephrology nursing workforce, because I, I'm sure like many of you, I've sat in on so many meetings during COVID, but even before the pandemic about workforce shortages and you feel helpless, right? Because there is, we're not doing anything right now to grow that workforce. And I mean, I have sat in numerous meetings and come out of that and been like, I'm quitting this job and I'm going to take up nephrology nursing because this is, you know, a huge I mean, it's such a huge problem, and I and I don't think that we have the policy infrastructure to support the growth that we need. And so I, I mean, I think you know, Congress needs to do something. They need to forgive tuition. We need to do something. And unfortunately, I don't know what it is. But yeah, I certainly have no solutions. But you know, to accentuate the value, uh, or the, the 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 message of the value of such experience um, brings. Yeah, I, I we have been struck by. The improvement in survival on dialysis that's occurred over the last 20 years in the U.S. This is a big, a big story, and I think it's a big, big win. And it really reflects principally those folks who are on the ground, on the ground, really giving their careers, uh, you know, to help patients out. Uh, yeah, I think it's a series of small changes and even unmeasurable changes that have occurred over time. Maybe even these sort of learning health systems that we have with our dialysis system. I mean, this is a real achievement. From it's actually about roughly about 30% relative uh, reduction in mortality from about 23, 24%. But you know what it's also doing, Bruce, is it's keeping patients out of the hospital. But if our training programs focus on people in the hospital, then they are not seeing the great survival of patients on dialysis and just CKD. They're seeing people who, who don't do well because that's why they're being hospitalized. And so your exposure for both trainees and for nurses is, is very limited to what you see if we don't actually get curricula that gets people in the outpatient setting. They don't see the whole dialysis. They don't see the transplant. And I, I kind of disagree with you, Jan. I still think we have a nephrology, a nephrologist rather, uh, a, a workforce problem as well um, because we have, we have fewer people going into internal medicine and we have fewer people going into nephrology and we have a lot of individuals who, have, um, who need waivers, who need J1 waivers. And we need to, that's a policy issue. We need to get more waivers. And I think if Congress and the state legislatures realize how much primary care nephrologists do and rank us with the primary cares in terms of waivers, we would actually be much, much better because I'm concerned about faculty um, having enough of them. And I think we do a terrible job selling actually really how 
amazing it is what we do. I mean, there's no other field where, whether you're talking about, and I'm going to focus specifically on dialysis here, but where you have the intensity and the continuity of relationships for long periods of time or patients where, I mean, you are literally enabling them to hopefully engage fully in their lives and you build up relationships and you know these people well enough that you can look at them for a second and say, okay, something's off here. And, and we've never sold that to the general populace saying, hey, this is an awesome thing that we're doing. Come join us. Yeah, well, plus also now sell the innovation, right? The opportunities for innovation in the non-dialysis space, but also the transition to, to kidney bay there and everything going on, moving towards home dialysis, et cetera. I mean, if, you, if you're interested in, in, uh, in a, innovation and excitement, there's really a ton going on, particularly on the policy side as well. And the innovation also, we are getting to have more precision medicine approaches. So, you know, the genetic testing, our understanding, and, and even the APOL1 story, while we still don't understand why, it, it actually provides some background and some, I mean, when I talk to patients about it, 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 it kind of clicks in them that it's not, you know, they're not being told, oh, you just didn't take your blood pressure medicines anymore. They're actually being told there's an actual causal reason for why you seem to be at higher risk for kidney disease. And I think we need to sell that to our, resident, our residents, our internal medicine residents, a lot more than we do right now. So there's a shift from in-center hemodialysis to other modalities, such as transplant and home dialysis, and a huge push in some of the voluntary models. And th this, I think, is a real advance in terms of knocking down silos. I think that we've been put in the situation where we think about CKD as one group, there's dialysis as another group, there's transplant as a third group, and there's sort of hard barriers between each of these places, even though patients are going to move back and forth across these different realms multiple, multiple times. Um, and anything we can do to knock down these silos and to make sure that care is incentivized to prevent progression or movement into a different silo at any point is super valuable. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the one of the missing pieces of the current kidney models that we have right now is that they have not done as good a job as I wish they had at incorporating transplant because it is a spectrum of care, as you say, and transplant has, there's very little value-based care in transplant beyond the outcome of transplant itself. But where you know dialysis has been a huge focus for CMMI, transplant has not, and I think that is fat. That to me, that's fascinating because there are so many targets for value in kidney transplantation and post-transplant care. It's always struck me, especially with transplant, that people who have a transplant who have to return to dialysis have the same high rate of starting dialysis with a central venous catheter, starting hemodialysis with a central venous catheter, as do people with CKD. And it's a terrible number. It's like 70 to 80%, even though these are people that we know have kidney problems, we know they're at risk of progressing. And I think it just strikes me as, as just evidence that there, these, these silos do exist and not to disparage what's going on transplant because you're doing everything you can to keep that graft going for as long as possible. But just that sometimes at every phase of this, we need to think a whole lot more holistically and make sure we're addressing all the problems and anticipating what's going to come next. Overall, by the way, this, this, this issue of, you know, you know, 80% of patients starting dialysis with a catheter is again, such a huge barometer and so indicative of, of flaws in, in, in the, the holistic care that, that we need. 
So perhaps we will be moving, starting to move away from that. And I think in terms of low-hanging fruit, as it were, with respect to early dialysis mortality, that is the key one. You know, we look internationally and it's the countries that have highest catheter use that have highest early dialysis mortality. The U.S. is one of those. Yeah, because I think those also identify people who just are not adequately prepared. So I think the catheter in itself is bad, but it's also that they're crashing in and other bad things are happening. Exactly right. It's really just a marker, as it, as it were, right, for, for insufficient care uh, that we're providing. But similarly, I mean, you know, again, looking at metrics such as percent of patients starting dialysis with insufficient pre-dialysis care has remained high and it hasn't gotten much better. Um, I also am really interested in EGFR at, at dialysis start, and that remains quite high. And, um, you know, you can imagine that as, as care and value-based care starts to improve, all of those metrics might improve. And actually, we might see patients in general starting at lower EGFR, really, again, a, as a barometer of, of, of better care holistic. And I think it's, it's, this gets back to population health and case management um, pre-dialysis that the expectation is on nephrologists to provide all of this. And we don't have the bandwidth. Uh, you know, we really need to um, incorporate the lessons learned from diabetes case management, cardiovascular case management, and actually incorporate that into the renal pre-care or the kidney pre-care, because I think that's where we're going to make a difference. And I don't know, you know, some of these Medicare Advantage plans, I've been asked by our health systems, Medicare Advantage plans, what, what, what do we need to offer patients to get, and I'm like, case management, pharmacy management, these patients take 20 pills a day, you know, we need these basic um, uh ideas behind patients. Um, and a lot of people, when they go from this late stage CKD, they don't feel well, they're not able to work as well. It's the same crisis when they're losing insurance. It would be great if we could start the Medicare benefits at stage four. So I, I wish. Keep them off um, dialysis, you know, and that's the silos you're talking about. Yeah, it, it makes no it sense. Way. Yeah, no, it makes no sense whatsoever from a financial or a patient care perspective to only give them healthcare benefits when they hit the dialysis machine. And, and that might even preclude them from being listed for transplant. Yeah, I think Medicare Advantage is a fascinating, a really, really fascinating trend in, in kidney care. And when you look at how fast Medicare Advantage is growing among the ESKD population, I mean, it is astronomical growth. Like I think in the first year that ESRD patients became eligible for Medicare Advantage, it went from like 25% to 30%. And then now if you look at DeVita's investor reports, it's like 45%. So we have almost reached the same proportion of ESRD beneficiaries in Medicare Advantage as the traditional Medicare population. And so probably in the next one to two years, the majority of ESRD beneficiaries will be in Medicare Advantage. And the possibility, I mean, there are a huge number of chronic kidney disease patients who are Medicare beneficiaries who are in Medicare Advantage. And so this is a really interesting area to think about because the fee-for-service environment has had such a huge influence on patterns of care in kidney disease and around dialysis and access to transplant, access to home dialysis. And now Medicare Advantage is going to have an equal influence on patterns of care. And so I think we're kind of early enough in that, that we can try and shape what those patterns 
are. I mean, it's challenging because most beneficiaries have access to like 10, 15 Medicare Advantage plans, right? There are a lot of payers in the space. So it's not just as simple as saying, you know, if you're in Medicare Advantage, you're going to get case management. But I think there's an, I think there's an opportunity there. Yeah, although I think there's also huge risk as well. I mean, there's, there's tremendous opportunity and tremendous risk. If you look at Medicare Advantage, I mean, one of the best things that we've had, one of our innovations in dialysis it has been the USRDS. Um, we have data for quality metrics and, and Bruce and the group at Michigan know this as well as any other. With the movement of such a large proportion to Medicare Advantage, we lose a ton of data input. We will not know anything near what we know about um, the dialysis population with half the dialysis patients um, being Medicare Advantage. Um, quality metric systems, um, they're gonna become far less robust because Medicare Advantage doesn't have to report data in the same way as Medicare. So we have potential gains in terms of potentially patient access, maybe there's better care coordination, case managers, care managers, maybe pharmacists, but then risks in as much as we will not know how to monitor what is actually going on with this with this, with this community of patients. Yeah, particularly in the shorter run, at least. One might hope that those sorts of problems will get, will get resolved. Uh, but I, I agree, Dan, with that. Uh, I think we really have to advocate for transparency across Medicare Advantage. I mean, Medicare is still paying for Medicare Advantage. And we need to make sure that we're able to learn from the heterogeneity of the many Medicare Advantage plans that are being offered and figure out what best practices are, rather than this being a black box where we never know anything at all. And the fact that there are so many plans tells you that it's a profitable endeavor for them. So we we as we do need to advocate to make sure that and identify. I think what's interesting to me is that they, I'm not sure these plans understand CKD enough to actually quantify what are the things that they need to do to save money. And I think that's an opportunity for policy to really implement and uh, make changes. Yeah, and I think we'll also want to monitor what the patient experience is in Medicare Advantage, because obviously there are huge advantages in that you have a, an out-of-pocket maximum that's much lower than in the average ESRD patient's out-of-pocket costs in traditional Medicare. So that's a huge advantage. There's, you know, a disadvantage in that you suddenly have a provider network. And, you know, what does that mean? Particularly, what does that mean for access to a kidney transplant? Right, because like if you only have one transplant center in your network and that transplant center is five hours away, that's not gonna work. I mean, maybe it's gonna work, but it's gonna definitely be a barrier to access for some patients. And so I, I do think that, you know, the point about data is really important and I, uh, understanding sort of where patients are benefiting from Medicare Advantage and where they're facing barriers in Medicare Advantage is gonna be really important. And that gets to the fine line of like restrictive networks. Um, which have advantages because they control costs, but it has a lot of disadvantages in terms of continuity and potentially convenience. And Medicare Advantage, I mean, there are time and distance standards which don't exactly apply the same way in Medicare Advantage as they may elsewhere with other insurers. And, and that's another threat for the well-being of our patients. I think we need to watch out for that they're able to maintain, to knock down these silos that we're talking about, they should be able to maintain care with their CKD docs and with, with whoever works at their hospitals. And, and Finding where the sweet spot is for this is going to be really important. I think it's also going to require a lot of advocacy on the part of patients and providers. And it's partly, I mean, think about the VA system and transplantation. So, you know, a few centers get to do a transplant and now they've opened it up and the rates of transplant have increased. And, and that's the kind of thing that we need to make sure that, that 
there are some rules set in the Advantage programs for patients who um, have uh, ESKD. Yeah, and I think the you know the Medicare Advantage plans have a huge amount of leverage over transplant centers, right? Because they put the high performing transplant centers in their center of excellence networks, and then there are only so many center of excellence networks, and then that becomes you know the de facto infrastructure for for patient access. And you know I think a lot about you know, we, we focus so much in transplant around metrics in traditional care, right? And so it's just like on and on about the one year patient and graft survival metric. And we have to get that out of almost too much because we're not actually people who are high risk are, are being turned down by some units, you know, that because they don't want to ruin their metrics. I mean, it's sad. And then, but like we focus so much on the traditional Medicare measures, but, you know, very little about what are the center of excellence like what are those center of excellence payers holding transplant centers accountable for? Because if they're still holding them accountable for one year patient and graft survival, it doesn't really matter what Medicare does because the reimbursement from the payers is so much higher than traditional Medicare. So I, I think that that's another area that is ripe for some policy attention is what the MA payers are doing around transplant. And innovation too. So are they going to be as open-minded? Well, it took us a while to get there, but are they going to be as open-minded about paying for new and novel drugs and things? So, you know, one of the reasons that, for example, Kidney X, um, we had tried to raise money in the general um, population, the U.S. basically from donors, and the fear was that there was no commercialization potential because it was controlled by Medicare then you form like the Kidney Health Initiative and other things to actually make there a clear pathway to commercialization, then investors can get interested. But with the Medicare Advantage plans not necessarily having to abide by all those same rules, we are, again, de, um, we're making that pathway less clear. So I think we need to really think about that. Um, it's so important, back to the first topic we discussed on innovation, to have a clear pathway to have a way to pay for new drugs and new things because, and that's why all the, the companies in pharma in particular have gone towards the pre-dialysis because there's a, there's a pathway to commercialization. So to really increase innovation in dialysis, we need to have that pathway clearly delineated in all of the possible plans and payers. We need to provide the seed funding. We need to offer access to business and entrepreneurs. And to celebrate that 50th anniversary of the Medicare Act, we should be really highlighting we have come it's not lack of innovation it's just not accelerated innovation and we can do so much more we still run blood and clean it and put it back in <laughs> you know i mean that's that's the basics of dialysis so i think we can do a lot more it's interesting the mechanism is in place right now to pay for let's say new drugs or new devices for dialysis patients they'll give a year or two and then the question is okay now this becomes bundled. It becomes incorporated into a net payment and there's a couple dollars extra added onto the bundle. And then what happens then for an expensive drug? Um, will patients still be able to get it? And if there's no guarantee they can still get it, is it even fair to start prescribing it in the first place? So I think we need to fix the system. This is the Tadapa system. Right, well, and we've seen, seen already several drugs coming through that system and you know, we see what happens with that. This is exactly what you noted, Dan. Right, and, and it's not even that, because the, the, even though they can be in the bundle, it also requires the, the LDOs, the for-profit dialysis, to actually have a policy and make it easy for 
physicians to prescribe. And so there are a couple barriers in that, but I, I agree, we're, we're not gonna get anywhere um, if we don't actually fix this pathway to commercialization. You know, one example that I think is really fascinating is, um, oh, I'm gonna forget the name of the drug. It's Vifor's drug, V4's drug, the, uh, the anti-itch drug. Bifelokephalon. Okay, well, you guys can say that. I'm not gonna try, but, but I, think it's, I think it actually provides a fascinating case study of why Tadapa does not work, right? Because the whole premise of the post two-year pass-through payment is that your drug lowers costs, right? And so that creates an incentive for the dialysis provider to provide high, what are, you know, quote unquote, high value products, right? Like, so that you're still earning money in the bundle. But a drug that is an anti-itch drug that is not going to keep patients out of the hospital, presumably, but might dramatically improve their quality of life, there's no incentive there. Tadapa doesn't work for a drug like that. And I, and I think that's just a, that really crystallizes that that's, Tadapa is such a blunt policy. And it, there, it doesn't have a lot of nuance and it doesn't allow for a lot of nuance. It's not patient-centric, that's for sure. Yeah, and then that's the thing, getting to patient-reported outcomes and, and figuring out how to look at this and how to really put the patient at the center of all of this. I, I think that's where we've started to move there, but figuring out how to make those next steps so that the patient's at the center of this and, and everything that we're doing is to make sure that they can live the best lives that they're able to live. We, we, we still have a long ways to go to get there. And we need patients to help us advocate. We can't do it all. Um, and that's what's great about seeing the NKF, ASN, these patient networks. There's so much more activity, I think, than there was 10 years ago from patient groups. So applaud that to you, applaud that. It's really exciting to see all the advocacy in the community. And I'm so looking forward to less pandemic restrictions, starting to see everybody get together in person and, and regenerate a lot of that excitement that's just mm -hmm. isn't present when you're just meeting people on Zoom every time. So I think we do have a lot of hope for, for what's going to come in the next year or two that we'll be able to really accomplish a lot with advocacy, with good ideas, and take all these things that we've been working on so hard and really push them the next step. Let's make sure our patient groups and advocates actually get to hear a podcast like this, um, where they can see how much of a difference they can make in helping to, to, change, uh, to change the situation. Yeah, I always, whenever I do these, um, you know, CMS meetings and, you know, you prepare forever because you want to have like the most evidence-based case that you can, you want to make the strongest argument you can, you want to make sure that they know that you thought about trade-offs and then they don't care at all about what I have to say. They want to hear from the patients. And I think that that is so wonderful, right? I mean, it just, it gives me a lot of faith and a lot of hope. Well, thank you, everyone. That was a wonderful discussion. I personally learned a lot from this. But as we're coming towards the end of the podcast, I'd like to ask each one of you, what is the one big thing that's coming up in the future that you're looking forward to? So I'll ask uh, Sharon to go first. I do have to say, I think it's innovation and personalized approaches. So I think that down the road, when we take a patient, uh, that we can get closer to the cancer world, for example, example where we see a patient and we can actually not only do a predictive model based on a couple of clinical values, but actually add genetics into that predictive model, then we'll be able to really innovate and personalize medicine approaches. Miriam? I think that the pandemic has really highlighted some of the challenges that we have in primary care. 
And even before we had COVID, you know, we we're kind of trying to move toward value-based care and primary care and, you know, but ultimately fee-for-service still predominates. And I think the pandemic has really highlighted that primary care needs help, a lot of help. And when I think about kidney disease policy, I immediately think about primary care and how overburdened and exhausted these clinicians are. And then we're going to them and saying, don't you want to screen for kidney disease? Don't you want to manage these patients? Don't you want to do smoking cessation and lifestyle management and referral to medical nutrition therapy? And don't you want to put your patient on an ACE and an ARB and then SGLT2 inhibitor? And it's a non-starter because we can't give them another thing to do until we have created a different world for primary care and really started to better reward primary care practices and primary care clinicians for true value-based care. And so that's something that I, I think the pandemic has really shown the spotlight on, we're working on primary care, but we have a lot more to do. I'm really, really hopeful that we will see more reforms to primary care and that they will be able to do more for CKD patients and patients at risk. Bruce? Yeah, I think, for, you know, from my point of view, it really ultimately access to care, real patient choice. Um, I, I think from that's really, and just, just doing, really starting to do away with, with inequities in a, in a real way. I mean, I think from my point of view, if you think about it, um, the fact that patients who know how to advocate for themselves have greater access to resources is just fundamentally a problem, right? Uh, it shouldn't be on the patient. It needs to be on the system to, 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 to open things up for, for, for all people. And finally, Dan. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that's been said here. And I think it comes down to really empowering patients and also empowering the clinicians who care for them to be able to provide the best care, to be able to span silos, to be able to slow progression and to be able to allow patients to be able to live their best lives. Um, and I think there's a lot that's coming into play that's hopefully going to empower our community to be able to do this better. Thank you for a wonderful discussion, everyone. And uh, thank you for being the special guests on this episode of the Life of a Nephrologist podcast. I hope everyone enjoyed learning about health policy and kidney disease with Miriam Godwin, Sharon Moe, Bruce Robinson, and Dan Wiener. Please check out the Policy Forum collection at ajkd.org for other interesting and relevant content. Many of them, including articles, are freely available. Finally, sign up for the NKF Advocacy Newsletter to stay informed with policy and legislation updates. Thank you.